Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the 4040 Vision podcast. We're so excited to jump in, but before we do, here's a quick word from one of our presenting sponsors. Welcome, everybody, to the first episode of the 40 Vision, 4040 Vision podcast, the uh, ultimate sports history pod where we cover sports history from back to front. Uh, I'm your host, Colette Abdallah, and joining me today is Simon Dahoud. What's up? All right. So today we're going to talk about some of the uh, main turning points slash what if moments in Golden State Warriors history. Um, so to introduce you to the concept, uh, you know, we're not talking totally uh, multiverse type ideas where, you know, what happens if if the Warriors draft Kobe instead of, uh, you know, Mike Dunleavy or whatever. But we're talking more 50-50 type moments where, you know, there really was a coin flip type situation or a situation where, you know, uh, it could go from from one to another. Very, and we can see the outcomes pretty clearly. Uh, so our plan, of course, is to to do this for you know, every team out there. So, so keep an eye out for, for podcasts as, as we publish them. But uh, as both Osama and I are uh, diehard Warriors fans, born and bred, uh, we wanted to jump off the pod and start things with uh, a team where we have some overlap here. So uh, we're going to get started with, with Osama's number one, and, and we're going to jump right in. Yeah, thanks, man. This is this is exciting. Uh, some of this is is fairly recent, so depending on how old you are, you might have some recollection of it. But uh, it's interesting, nonetheless, to, to still explore it. So uh, I think we both share this particular one, but this is actually quite a pivotal moment uh, in Golden State Warriors history, and that's the trifecta, kind of the Steph Curry, Monte Ellis, Andrew Bogut uh, situation, where. Um, Monte Ellis is kind of a very popular player on the team and the Warriors seemingly draft what might be his replacement. And he wasn't really too thrilled about that. He didn't like the idea of playing with Steph. He was very vocal about that and how it didn't seem like they could coexist. So Golden State Warriors brass kind of had to start thinking about how to break this up. What ended up happening was Monte Ellis was traded to the Milwaukee Bucks for center Andrew Bogut, who was the number one overall draft pick a couple of years before that, and had actually made uh, an All-NBA, third All-NBA. Monte Ellis had never made any uh, All-NBA list. So it was great because the Warriors finally got uh, a big man that was a capable defender. It had something that they had been missing for as long as I remember, maybe dating back to Chris Weber. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Who played center, didn't want to, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, a nugget as an honorable mention that, that I wanted to bring up is what what did end up happening is a Curry deal. This is from an excerpt from Ethan Strauss's book, The Victory Machine. It's a good book. A Curry deal was discussed. 
in process, they got far enough to where they were going to trade Steph to Milwaukee, but they red flagged it and said, no, this dude needs surgery. We're not going to take a guy that needs surgery. So it's possible that by default, uh, they had to trade Monte instead of Steph, and, and he got that very low contract, four years, $44 million. Uh, what, what do you think about this? What, what are your thoughts? What points did you have? Yeah, and, and this is one of those things where at the time, it was it was definitely not as, as clear and obvious as it is now, right? I mean, now, obviously, it's it's funny to even think about this being a question, but at the time, you're talking about Steph being the small guard. He's got ankle problems. You're like, is this guy going to have a legit career in the NFL or sorry, in the NBA? Not even is he going to be a great player. Um, so the Warriors kind of, they got their asses saved by just by default, right? Cause he was hurt. Milwaukee got, got cold feet. Um, so at the time we, we didn't really know, you know, how close it was to, to it being Steph, but like, like Ethan Strauss, I mean, he revealed it was kind of a bombshell that slid under the radar in that book. Cause it was mostly about KD, but um, the fact that they actually moved Monte instead was not, it wasn't, it wasn't like a decision they made. They kind of lucked out. So, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about, but like, what, what do you, I mean, other than the obvious, what is some of the, you know, the domino effect of, of this decision to keep Steph and, and send Monte out? Yeah. Like we were saying, Monte was popular. He was part of that. We believe squad. He was an exciting player. He was a good, he was a pretty good shooter. Uh, and Curry, I actually remember wanting uh, Jordan Hill at the time when that Steph Curry draft. It was a different uh, NBA, man. Different yeah, NBA. Yeah, I remember like wanting uh, a guy who, a big who played well in college. And I was like, Jordan Hill would be cool. And they drafted Steph. So it's a, we'll, we'll see how this goes. Um, the domino effect is, you know, gambling on Steph Curry. Monte Ellis goes and he's had an okay career in Milwaukee. I think they made the playoffs once or twice and they lost to uh Miami I think it was was that when Brendan Jennings said that they were gonna whoop the heat I think right in Bucks in six that was the the, the famous Bucks. meme yeah yeah Bucks in <laughs> six um but that's the last I remember of Monte he might have been made another uh bounce or two around the league after Milwaukee I, I don't remember um, yeah he was on Dallas for a couple years Indy for a couple years um but you know he was nothing close to obviously what what Steph is or what he even was when he was with uh, uh with the Warriors so yeah it just became this gamble on this guy with glass ankles and he had surgery and he just dedicated himself to getting stronger and he didn't really have concerning ankle injuries after that that was like a reputation he had but I remember being at a, at a playoff game against Denver in 2013 where he hurt his ankle and in, in a game, but he did play the rest of the series. He played in every playoff series except uh, when he got hurt a, a, a few years ago, uh, and that that was that was actually a significant injury. But the ankles haven't been uh, that kind of problem again, so it ended up being uh, possibly a risky gamble that turned into you know one of the most impactful players in the history of the league. Yeah, so we got to credit Steph's glass ankles at the time for this decision. And then of course, for being able to afford KD several years later. Um, so this was like a, a major butterfly effect. And the thing is what, what's like I said, aside from the obvious of Curry becoming, you know, top 10 all time player, maybe better more, you know, as his career goes on, just the, the future of the Warriors as a franchise, like this was that crux point, right? 
And they, the irony of it all is that it had very little to do with their own, you know, front office and their own decision-making. They kind of backed at, backed into this because Milwaukee got scared. And it, you imagine a team that has Monte Ellis, that's, you know, pretty injury prone, small, smaller guard than Steph even. And then you have Andrew Bogut, another injury prone guy. And those are your two main players. You know, you're, you're fading back into obscurity very quickly after that. And, you know, there's no dynasty, obviously there's no anything <laughs> after that moment. So I think that this is a pretty clear number one. And I, I'm you know, glad we agree on that one. Yeah. hundred percent. There's some honorable mentions that kind of uh, coexist with it, but we can, we can cover those later. Okay. Anything else on that one? No, no. I, I think we, okay. we explored it. Uh, the, 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 what a scenario here is Monte stays. We don't have the dynasty. I think that's pretty yeah. clear cut. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I put a pin in that one. That's the exact one. All right. Uh, so the, the number two, uh, for me at least, and I think there is some uh, differentiation between our choices here. Um, so obviously the, the summer of 2016, uh, the famous Kevin Durant chase, um, you know, after the, uh, the 3-1 uh, collapse, uh, KD is being courted by every, you know, contender in the NBA, you know, LeBron's calling him, the Celtics send out the, the red carpet, they have Tom Brady call him, everything, everyone pulls out all the stops. And then we have the famous meeting, you know, the Hamptons Five meeting where, uh, you know, the, the Warriors come out, Curry, Draymond, Iguodala, Clay, and they convince him, uh, you know, to ultimately choose the Warriors. But I think what was the really interesting alternative here is he was reportedly really close to choosing Boston instead. Um, and I feel like that in itself, obviously, you know, the Warriors would have would have still been a, a power in the West. Um, but what's really important is that the overall impact on Kevin Durant's career and perhaps his his mental health is like his own state of mind, right? Because he goes from the Warriors where he's, you know, doesn't have his own team. He's still secondary to Steph in the fans' minds, blah, blah, blah. He gets his own team in Boston. He's the alpha dog, right? Jalen Brown and uh, Jason Tatum are not challenging this guy for control of the team. And you wonder, like, would, would KD actually be happy there? And perhaps, like, does he retire a Celtic? And, you know, yeah. Any, any, you know, any thoughts on that one? I know you didn't have this one as your number two, but. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think KD as his own category in general is interesting to explore. It's hard. He's such a misery, uh, online at least. It's hard to see him happy. I think he likes to play it off and fan engagement is fun and all. And, and maybe to some degree, he just lives to, uh, he lives for that kind of, uh, that energy, to, so to speak. He, he admitted to the Warriors losing in the finals being very much easier on his decision um, before. I think Jerry West ended up being the call that kind of uh, eased his conscience a little bit because Jerry West said, look, man, I lost in the finals a million times. And if I could take it all back, I'd find a way to, to win every one of those goddamn series. So and you had go, this one ranked, right? But not where, where did you have this one ranked for yourself? I had this one ranked, I think at number five, just because there were so many other things I wanted to explore. Um, I think that what made this interesting is Clay Thompson's game six. 
clear. This I thought we were done. Like at the time, like I was pulling my hair out. I was like, my God, this beautiful season is over. I hate Kevin Durant. I'm so I was so scared of playing him. I actually wanted to play San Antonio because I was so mortified of of Kevin Durant th- that season. So you know, game six, Clay happens, overcome a three one lead, blow a three one lead, and that's what made it possible. So I think your Boston scenario is more so likely to happen if the Warriors win the finals. I think that makes it a little more, that increases the percentage of it happening. Because then, I mean, the way this is discussed, is just the most exhausted conversation in social, on NBA Twitter, just taking the easy path and winning a real ring. It's disgusting, you know? Hashtag I just, rings, all that. Yeah. All that, rings with a Z at the end and all that. <laughs> yeah, all that shit. Uh, but the Warriors winning is a more interesting caveat because if they do win like you said there's a chance he still shamelessly goes i'm still going there i don't give a damn what anybody thinks but i remember that kind of kevin durant sweepstakes there was like someone leaked that the clipper he was blown away by the clippers yeah denying that the Um, owner uh steve bomber was was reportedly in tears you know painting the vision of you know, taking over LA with, with KD by his side. Uh, a lot of great memes from that one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's what's really interesting. I mean, other than the impact on the Warriors, I think um, it, it, it shifts the balance of power in the East, right? I mean, you still have obviously LeBron and the Cavs. You have the Sixers are kind of middling at this point. Giannis is, is up and coming. So LeBron, for the most part, is has an unimpeded path to the finals every year after that, because there's no one really in the East to challenge him. So what happens if, you know, instead of playing Jalen Jason and Marcus smart, he's playing Jalen Jason and Kevin Durant, you know, is our, do we get the Cavs warriors, you know, the, the series of, you know, the, the four, the four straight finals. So. Yeah, he does. It's basically LeBron joins the East again, right? Someone who's his equal kind of impact. Kind of default is like the Warriors Cavs era was like there's a baby coming and everyone knows the name of that baby and what gender that baby is and everything and the name of that baby was Warriors Cavs one two three and four right it was, everyone they they tried to deny it you had the hipsters talking about Utah this and you know just it was it was there was the sense of inevitability and people tried to push back against it and it just it wasn't happening it would have been beautiful schematically he'd spoken of. Uh, what Brad Stevens' schemes defensively were like against him. It was a, quite the compliment to um, what Brad Stevens did when defensively scheming against Kevin Durant. And he liked that when they showed him uh, in the meetings, like, here's what we would do if you were here. Jake Crowder famously said, we showed him everything, which is very naive of him to say. But uh, nonetheless, I think that they would have absolutely been a pain in the ass for the Cavs. Uh, they might have had, LeBron might have done some other shifts um, maybe Kawhi Leonard doesn't go to, to well, Kawhi Leonard was traded to Toronto, but maybe that isn't as as clear cut. The East definitely would have been uh, the more dominant conference. All it takes is one player to make the East look like a complete, you know, nightmare for everybody else. So I think that KD choosing Boston was also something that I, I remember thinking about this once upon a time, and the only other shameless choice he would have made is joining Cleveland. Um, but but Boston, I think, is the highest likelihood of happening. Yeah, I, I mean, he said after the decision, I mean, several months later, I think that he was not going to join the winning team, basically. He wasn't going to be, you know. Obviously, it's one thing that, that the Warriors beat the, the Thunder, 
but to join the winning team was like, all right, like that's a, that's a little too much for him, at least in his mind. Um, even though he probably would have faced the same criticism either way, really. So, uh, do you think he's still a Boston Celtic if, if he makes that decision? It's five years out. Is he still there? Does he retire a Celtic? No, I don't think so. He, he seems to be one of these players that doesn't really have a loyalty to a specific team. I mean, once upon a time, maybe you think that, right? But we've kind of gotten to know him a little bit. He quietly signed his first extension on a napkin or something. He didn't announce it. He, it was like a no-brainer in Oklahoma City. Uh, but as we've gotten to know him and how frustrating the idea of legacy is, um, if he doesn't win a championship in Boston, for the sake of example, he's absolutely out of there, right? Um, so either way, whether they win or not, I think he leaves. Yeah, no, that, that's totally fair. And if he does win a championship there, that's when I think he, he sticks around for that legacy reason, because, you know, you play for one of the prestige franchises, you become one of those, those names in the rafters and that becomes, you know, he's definitely discussed in a much different light by us, you know, peasants on social media. Um, so yeah, it, it's a major, major shift there. Yeah, it's interesting because he won here and he still left and didn't want to stick around. So he's just such a complicated character. But I'd, you'd like to think without all of the toxicity that in, involved his moving here to the Bay Area, that he'd at least give the Celtics one extension when after winning a championship. Absolutely. Uh, cool. Do you have anything else for this one? No, back over to you. Yeah, so this one in terms of impact is, I think, pretty prevalent. It didn't seem like much at the time, but after Mark Jackson was fired, there was kind of a coaching carousel of candidates in the air. There was talk of Tom Thibodeau coming over. Stan Van Gundy was very much in the running, and Steve Kerr was in the running. And at the time, Steve Kerr was just a broadcaster for TNT. He was the GM of the Suns at one point and and had a decent run there, uh, but it, he didn't really pop out. I wasn't really interested in Steve Kerr being the coach of the team. I've watched him growing up as a bull in a, in, a, in a San Antonio spur, but it didn't exactly pop out saying, yeah, this is what we need because Mark Jackson, fine. But, so what I want to explore is what would have happened if the Warriors selected Stan Van Gundy? Because as Jerry West influenced uh, Kevin Durant coming. He also influenced Steve Kerr coming, and he later on will discuss he influenced Clay Thompson staying and not being traded for Kevin Love, which was also happening at the same time of this coaching search. Um, and I mean, and if I remember correctly, Kerr was choosing between the Warriors and the Knicks. I think those were his two options. Yep. And if you think about it, at the time, it's the Knicks, one of the biggest franchises in in the NBA, regardless of on court success versus the Warriors. And it's it's a credit to Kerr and being kind of prescient and seeing that or prescient and seeing that, you know, this is a team that's on the rise. Let me go to the Warriors instead of, of the Knicks. So yeah, but continue with with uh, Stan Van Gundy. Yeah. So Kerr shows up to the meeting with a freaking like a book basically on what he would do. And Stan Van Gundy ends up losing out. Um, Mark Jackson's impact was significant. The team's defense went up. Um, the players really just adored him because he could connect with them, having also been a very good player himself. So Stan Van Gundy had been to an NBA Finals before with the Orlando Magic. 
Um, he ended up becoming the coach of the Detroit Pistons. So we're competitive. They were they, there. They, yeah, they weren't bad. He he's notorious for coaching his players pretty hard. He uh, is on their asses in practice. They do they have tough practices. He he doesn't shy away from confrontation. He kind of has like an old school style approach that's been reported by JJ Redick in a kind of a polite tongue in cheek way. The Pelicans' young players didn't really like it that much. Um, Dwight Howard <laughs> famously didn't like it either. Uh, it's kind of an old school style, tough defensive mindset. Uh, so you look at the Pelicans, he didn't rub them the right way, especially after being coached by Alvin Gentry, who connected with players. And the, the problem is Stan Van Gundy was more concerned with the, the minutiae of, of execution of X's and O's over personal relationships. So even though he's Mr. Accountability and all these other things, uh, those personal relationships in, in a locker room uh, come a long way because he's not a player's coach. Steve Kerr, what what is so fascinating about him is he's been through it all. He played with the, the best player of all time in all of these big game situations. He played with San Antonio and kind of had under legendary coaches, Phil Jackson, Greg Popovich. He played with uh, Mr. S- the, the most selfless player of all time in, in Tim Duncan and just was able to manage egos. You look at other sports, what made a coach like Pep Guardiola or Vicente Del Bosque really effective is they could manage the largest egos in the world in one locker room. And that's what made Steve Kerr really effective in Golden State. So and he had he had a, a the perfect mix of, of both, at least I think so. I mean, I know he gets some some grief uh, on social for his uh, his in-game adjustments and things like that. But what what he had, he brought that players coach mentality that Mark Jackson had without the divisiveness you know we i think we've all heard the story about how uh mark jackson you know ostracized festus azili and he was really weird with with the front office and he did, wasn't a fan of jerry west and he's just a very strange dude and his he team also, was his team wasn't prepared he also accused harrison barnes of being possessed by a demon exactly and he would take the he'd take off days you know to fly down to la to, to preach at his church like more power to you if you want to do that, you know, on your own time, but you know, the Mark Jackson teams were known. I think you noted for, for, you know, less ball movement than, than it was, you know, popular at the time and just being unprepared. There was a lot of weird losses to bad teams. You know, if there was a long, you know, if there was a three day layoff, it was almost guaranteed that the Warriors were going to lose that game when, when they came back from that. So I think, yeah, Kerr has that mix of, of both X's and O's and that, that player player management. Yeah, and and to to turn it back to to Stan Van Gundy, um, not different than Mark Jackson. They played a lot of pick and roll on uh, in in New Orleans or and in Orlando and in Detroit. In Detroit, what ended up happening was not a lot of t- offensive talent, so teams kind of figured them out, and they did work on ball movement. So I think schematically, he didn't have an old school approach in terms of execution. I think he did have a somewhat of a modern mindset in terms of how to execute offensively they like to sell out on offensive rebounds and focus more on transition which was a plus and minus given the Warriors personnel they play fast which would have actually worked well the one thing that I don't think he would have had the balls to do that Steve Kerr did was bench an all-star in David Lee and Andre Iguodala and start a bunch of unknown youngsters in Draymond Green 
and Harrison Barnes. They started the season that way by Steve Kerr telling Andre, look, you got to trust me on this. I got to start the young guy. You'll be a leader on the bench. The, the, the bench will trust you as the leader. And he said, I hope this works. I'll kick your ass if it doesn't. And David Lee got hurt. I don't think David Lee had any plans of being benched. And Draymond Green played so well. I don't know if Stan Van Gundy would have said, you know what? We're going to stick with that guy. I kind of sense that he would have said, David Lee's back. Draymond, you're back to the bench. That's kind of just a feel I get from Van Gundy. So that ended up, you know, changing the, the, the outcome of the team with Draymond starting um, and Harrison Barnes starting too. Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, and it's because... Kerr has, I mean, he doesn't have the coaching cachet at that time, but he does have the, the, the all the experience that you noted before, right, of, of playing on these championship teams and knowing chemistry and, and how things work. And he can point to that and say, you know, it takes this kind of sacrifice from a guy like Iguodala or David Lee, who, I mean, was is not the same player as Iguodala, but he's an all-star. He was a big money free agent. I think he's probably the, the highest earning player on the, on that team. And to be able to have the balls to make that decision, but also that player management, that man management to massage those egos and have everyone put that aside for the, the betterment of the team. And Stan Van Gundy does not have that kind of cachet. He has the experience as a coach, but he doesn't seem that type of dude. He's not that risk-taking type. He's not going to be able to kind of massage that situation so it doesn't become explosive. And I looked into the staff he would have brought on that he took to Detroit. They, a bunch of guys that had been with him before. Some people, a guy from Chuck Daly's Detroit Pistons championship staff. Like I think they would have brought a great team here. Steve Kerr ended up bringing a great team in Ron Adams and Alvin Gentry. So I don't think personnel was an issue. But I think my overall outcome here, if I had to, had to, if you put a gun to my head, here's the, the outcome. Due to the fact that I think it would have taken another couple of years to unlock Draymond Green, maybe Andre Iguodala doesn't age as gracefully as he did because he would still be a starter. David Lee breaks down. I think it takes another three years or so for them to get to the finals against LeBron or an Eastern Conference KD. I just I think that the development of the team takes a little bit longer, uh, just given that I don't think he would have taken risks like that. So we're looking at a, a 2018 or 17 17- finals yeah. versus a, a 14 15 season yeah i think we would probably see a, a james harden finals appearance before a steph curry one so or a chris paul or a chris paul god god forbid, forbid. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah last year was was rough just for just for that reason <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> all right uh anything else on this one i did not have this one listed uh on on my five but uh yeah anything else on that no, I think we, we covered it all. All right. Uh, so next up for me is is one that I had number three on the list, which you constantly did not have listed, uh, was a potential trade uh, before the 2014 season that was, that was much rumored, was a Clay Thompson for Kevin Love and perhaps some some other things uh, coming from the Warriors, which which speaks to uh, the stature uh, of player that that Kevin Love was at that time. Um, so if you recall, this was uh, the summer that the Warriors lost in seven to the uh, Los Angeles Clippers without Andrew Bogut. I think Bogut missed the last three games of that series. And all the talk during that time was, you know, the Warriors need to get bigger. They need to match up better with 
you know, uh, with DeAndre Jordan, with Blake Griffin, with Tim Duncan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it was a, an NBA where size was still at a premium. And you think about Kevin Love, he was not, you know, known for, for winning much like Carl Anthony Towns, but he was almost a 2020 guy here. He had that capability of being a 2020 guy, uh, every night. Um, so, you know, what, what is ultimately decided this trade or this non-trade was Jerry West, who once again, saves the Warriors ass, uh, you know, with his, his wisdom. And, you know, he's kind of sees the, the future of, of Clay Thompson and the player that he could become and not just the future of Clay Thompson, but the future of the NBA and the, and the direction that it was going. So he was ahead of the curve and seeing that, you know, space and shooting is going to be at, at a much higher premium than, you know, a, a low post presence or, uh, you know, a guy that's going to get you 2020, you know, 20 points, 20 rebounds. So, um, I think the big thing here is, of course, who was the Warriors' opponent in in 2015? Was Cleveland Cavaliers with Kevin Love, even though you know he he doesn't play in that series. Uh, but Andrew Wiggins ends up getting traded for, or the, the number one pick that what became Andrew Wiggins ends up getting traded to Minnesota in exchange for Kevin Love, and then of course Love is a, a major piece in the in the Warriors dynasty. So the question I have for you is, do the Warriors still make the finals? If they that that season, if they trade play for Kevin Love, and then what happens after that? Yeah, that's interesting because then they don't have uh, a shooting guard, right? Um, who would have started at shooting guard? Who because Love would have played at power forward or small forward. Um, Harrison Barnes stays on the bench. I don't know if if Steve Kerr as the coach makes that change anymore because you have a pretty young all-star caliber player, David Lee's probably maybe relegated to the bench or traded. It's hard to see who would have started at shooting guard, but they get someone. Maybe Barbosa. Yeah. Maybe Barbosa. Brandon Rush. Yeah. Or someone else in free agent. Someone like that. (laughs) Yeah. We'll just say that they, they find someone to fill in that space. So it's Steph, anonymous shooting guard, Kevin Love, uh, Draymond Green, Andrew Bogut, or David Lee, Andrew Bogut. I think that team could still get to the finals. I mean, because of his size, the Memphis series was the one that where size mattered so much. I think that he would have definitely been key, given Draymond's offensive limitations. Uh, he would have sp- still spaced the floor. I think defensively would have been the big issue. He was a great rebounder. He is a great rebounder, Kevin Love but defensively might've been a bit of a problem. Uh, so th- I think that might've, that would have made it difficult for them to, to be a dynasty, uh, but they still would have been a very threatening team nonetheless. Yeah. And, and if I recall correctly, I mean, this is still, you know, somewhat early in, in Clay's career. Um, and he's, he's not the same player that he was, you know, a few years later. Um, he's, he's still a contributor, but, you know, if you look at his, his performance, you know, in the finals, um, he was good, not great, you know? Um, so I think if you replace that with, uh, you know, he had one great game and he had, uh, 30, 35, 34 points in game two, but the rest, he was kind of a bit part player more for there, more for his defense. Um, so I, I do think it is fair to think that the Warriors make the finals and perhaps win, but after that, it, it really becomes a question of, you know, when clay becomes, you know, who he is now as, as the, perhaps the second greatest shooter of all time. So 
I think that that's really interesting to think about. Um, so just spitballing, but what's the move for LeBron in that case? Does he keep Andrew Wiggins? Does he flip that for another player or does he, you know, think, cause I think a lot of it was, was due to timeline. He, he didn't want to wait around for this number one pick to develop. So yeah. What, what happens there? Yeah. I feel like LeBron has always been a, you know, fuck them kids type of person. He doesn't like keeping young players around too often. Uh, look at their team now. Like they didn't, they didn't keep any of their young talent. Right. Um, they're, a lot of the talent is not going to start. There are a lot of young players, but they're on the bench. So maybe they take that pick and say, flip it for Carmelo Anthony from New York, uh, or they flip it for, um, I don't know, uh, uh, Josh Smith and a couple of other players. They, they do something else to get what in his mind, more reliable um, upfront talent, but they still don't keep Andrew Wiggins. He ends up being traded somewhere else for, for, all-star caliber players of some kind. Yeah. I think Carmelo is, is one of those, maybe a signing trade, um, you know, with New York to, to get him across uh, to, to Cleveland. Um, some of the, the notable transactions that, that summer in free agency, uh, D Wade and Chris Bosch, you know, resigned with the Miami heat. You know, they're not, they're not leaving there anytime soon. Paul Pierce, he wasn't playing with LeBron. He's kind of washed at that point anyway. So, uh, I'm sure LeBron and, uh, you know, the Cavs would have figured something out, but it's a really interesting question to think about because as, as maligned as Kevin Love was during his, his Cavs tenure, he was still an important player for them. And, you know, they're not, they're not the same team. There's no big three in, in Cleveland, uh, without him there. So here's the Steph Curry stopper in game seven. <laughs> <laughs> Steph Curry on one leg in 2016. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Uh, I think that's it for that one. Uh, yeah. No, it's yeah, all over to you. Jerry West, yeah, for saying, look. Move the, the savior ball. of the franchise. Yeah. Move the ball more. Get it to that Thompson kid. He'll shoot the lights out. It's no coincidence that the Clippers have been competent ever since he, he went down there. So, Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, so next one I have on my list goes a little further back in time, pre, pre-Dynasty pre uh, to the 90s. It, it's about Chris Webber. Um, I kind of went through a rabbit hole of bad Warriors contracts and saw kind of a correlation um, to Chris Webber and, and what happened there uh, because he ended up having a wonderful career. I know that he was traded on draft night for, for Penny Hardaway. For those that, d- that don't know, Chris Webber played uh, on the Fab Five team at University of Michigan. They were very iconic. They were very cool. Uh, he averaged 15 points per game and 19 points per game in his two years there. He even shot 33% from three. Uh, so the Warriors on draft night gave up the third overall pick and three future first-round picks. That first uh, pick ended up being Penny Hardaway. Uh, and they were a good team. They still had Chris Mullen, who was an all-star. Uh, they had a young Latrell Sprewell. So they just needed... Uh, a big guy to 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 a franchise player uh, with Chris Mullen run TMC, yeah, run, like kind of po- just post run yeah, TMC. Just post. Yeah, they they needed someone to to fill that void. Um, so here's here's what's interesting about the Chris Webber thing that I didn't know. I know he left, but I didn't know that they gave him this absurd contract, fifteen years contract. Initially, it was it, th- th- this is what they first offered him. Uh, for $74 million that gave him an opt-out the first year. 
it was going to be seven years guaranteed. That was the first deal. And Don Nelson, uh, who was the coach forever at the time, hated that he was given so much control and seven years of guaranteed money. NBA contracts were insane back then. A lot of them were six years and up, uh, which was kind of you know beneficial to owners. If a guy outplayed his contract, you have him at value, um, but you are screwed if they don't. Uh, it's the, the infamous you know, Scotty Pippen seven year contract that he was so bitter about for, for so long. So, yeah. So Chris Weber, 15 years, but he has a clause that lets him opt out after the first year, really a moronic clause because they traded away the farm uh, to get him. So the rumor was after the all-star break in 1994, he was considering using his opt out clause and Don Nelson was rumored to have said, if that's true, I'm freaking dead. <laughs> <laughs> so the team it's- made the play out. What's that? It's just, it, it just speaks to the, the sheer incompetence of, of the franchises. I don't know how you make that concession in, in any world where you, like you said, you trade the farm for a guy and you give him an out after a year. It, it makes no sense. Maybe you do that if you go all in for like, if Boston did that for Anthony Davis, because they think he's a missing piece and for, for a one year title run, but, but something like this just did not make any sense. Then it doesn't make any sense now. Hundred um, percent. In in that first year he was there, they actually made the playoffs. Didn't go anywhere. In the off season, he's like, you know, I'm going to sit out. I'm going to opt out. I'm going to wait for a new deal, and I'm going to try and get another first year clause. Chris Weber, hard negotiator, really tried to flex on teams, but he didn't want to play center. And Don Nelson kept trying to play him at center to try and so they tried to show, okay, 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 we'll play a power forward, please, please. So they traded away Billy Owens for a center named Ron um, Sicali. But it was too late. Ronnie Cycli, yeah. Cycli. See, I don't even know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> As in kindergarten. <laughs> yeah. I did a lot of reading. To... <laughs> so it was too late. Uh, they trade him to the Bullets uh, for a, a Gugliata um, and three first-round picks. So they end up getting their, their picks back. Warriors did not make a lot of good picks through the years, uh, you know, Joe Smith, I think, was the only number one overall pick they got throughout that time, and he was all right. Famous misses during that span, yeah, Kobe, okay. et cetera, et cetera. Kevin Garnett, yeah. KG, yeah. <laughs> Tim Duncan. We'll, we'll be here all day if we go do that. <laughs> so here's the outcome that, that I was thinking of. You tell me what you think about this. They make it work. Chris Weber stays. Maybe he restructures this contract to seven years instead of that stupid 15-year contract, and they get Chris Mullen ended up going to the Pacers and playing a couple of years, but they get Chris Mullen to stay for the good years he has left and don't trade him for Eric Dampier, which is what they did. Uh, they ended up drafting Mark Jackson in the second round in 97. So I don't know if they get another lottery pick. So they obviously miss out on KG and Tim Duncan and even Jason Richardson. But with, a, you know, you have a franchise player like Weber, uh, you can build a team around him. It's easy to build a team. And like you said, Biggs came at a premium. The one caveat is Don Nelson. I think Don Nelson survives the end of the world at the time. The owner uh, really liked him a lot. Uh, but I, I think that's the only other caveat that I couldn't think of to change. Pat Riley and some Van Gundys were floating around the league, but it, I still see Don Nelson surviving the zombie apocalypse. What do you think about all that? Yeah, and, and I listened to a, a podcast recently that uh, Chris Weber did with uh, Matt Barnes and Stephen Jackson, the the All the Smoke, where... He talks about this, and and what's really interesting is 
the I think the perception of of Chris Weber and who he is as a, a person is is so different, right? He's kind of uh, seen on the court. He's I don't want to say he's he's meek, but he's not the you know a tough guy. He's not doesn't seem like to have the most forceful personality. Uh, but off the court, he was all about player empowerment in his own way. Um, even when he was choosing his his college, uh, you know, a, a lot of that the, the reasoning you know behind choosing Michigan over some other schools uh, was because he felt some of the other schools were uh, not being fully honest with him, and you know he felt that he's being taken advantage as as a young black man, and he always had you know this uh, image in his head of of who he is as a person and. And being that that you know alpha personality, um, and this was a, a rare chance for a young guy to you know kind of pick his own destiny, right? If you think about it, if you're a, a draft pick, you know you sign that deal, you're generally there for at least three four years. In this case, he would have been there for 15 years, uh, which is crazy to think about. But he makes that decision probably motivated by you know the guaranteed money that came with it and the financial security. Um, so it's it's a really kind of seminal moment in NBA history that he took advantage, he took control of his own fate, his own destiny, and he he went on his own path. Uh, and he's kind of overlooked in that late '90s, early 2000s era. Um, he just happened to play in an era of some of the the best big men of all time. You get KG, Tim Duncan, you have Shaq. You know, I'm sure there's there's others that I'm missing, uh, but he was still you know four time All Star in sack. He took him to the brink. Uh, you know, if it wasn't for some questionable referee decisions, they make the finals. Um, so he is a cornerstone franchise type player that the Warriors let slip through their fingers for a combination of their own incompetence, but also the type of dude that he he is and the, the fact that he wanted that autonomy and that control over his own destiny. Yeah. And and the Warriors ultimately suffered they didn't make the playoffs again for 13 years after his rookie season he go like you said five time five all nba teams five all-star teams uh averaged 21 points a game nine rebounds almost 10 rebounds a game four assists a game he came back after the we believe year but his knee was you know done for and he actually retired a warrior so you know uh sad face with a tear maybe or a sad (laughs) violin or something but so he got his his happy ending, but yeah, by then he was he was a shell of of himself. So yeah, yeah. It, it's basically a huge what what could have been. But I thought Chris Webber was uh, a very notable negative turning point in Warriors history that took ended up being a long drought before reaching relevance again. Yeah, and on? so oh. I I did not have this one on on the list, but. Um, I did have one that that goes even further back. Uh, so we're we're going way back in time, hopping in our time machine, uh, way back to uh, the late seventies, um, early eighties. So uh, this is the selection of Joe Barry Carroll in the nineteen eighty NBA draft, and the decision to trade, you know, Robert Parrish and the pick. This is the the bigger piece, I think, the pick that would ultimately become Kevin McHale to the Boston Celtics in exchange for the number one pick um, and the right to select Joe Barry Carroll. So this was, you know, five years removed from the Warriors uh, title in 1975. Um, They are going through a tough period. They have, you know, an awful team 
you know, captained by, by uh, Robert Parrish, who ends up being one of the greatest NBA players of all time, but um, is kind of beat down by, by the losing, which is a, a familiar story that we get here. Uh, so the Warriors do all that. They trade for, for Joe Barry Carroll. Um, he plays there for four years. He gets an unflattering nickname. Uh, they used to call him Joe Barely Cares, uh, to give you an idea of, of the type of person, the personality that he, hit, he is. Um, he ended up playing in the NBA for about 10 years, but in the middle, uh, he went to Italy to play for a year as well. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, aside from this being the, the downfall, so there's two sides to this, right? The downfall of the Warriors in the, in the 80s, going from, a, you know, a pretty good franchise that recently won a title to being an awful franchise that was completely irrelevant, was that they decided to trade away Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish, or the pick that would become Kevin McHale. And the interesting kind of large, bigger picture in the turning point for not just the Boston Celtics, but of course for the NBA as a whole, is there is no Celtics dynasty, of course, without Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish. And that's a really interesting thing to think about is the incompetence of the Golden State Warriors basically created one of the greatest rivalries in NBA history or reinforced one of the greatest rivalries and reinvigorated it and gave us the bird magic, you know, era, uh, because, you know, bird for, for all his greatness still needed a, a number two. And he got a great one in Kevin McHale and another great player in, in Robert Parrish. So I know this one was <laughs> quite a ways back, but it's, it's, I think it's, it's important in a big moment for the Warriors. Yeah. I just want to give the Warriors a, a round of applause for creating that dynasty uh, and making the NBA a little more relevant than it was. Games were like on tape delay. Um, and I think that the, the league needed that with Magic Johnson and, and Bird coming into the league at the same time. Uh, there's a great series coming out in a few months on the Showtime Lakers on HBO that will document uh, some of this. But um, yeah, so I didn't maybe. Know, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know about this one. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd seen this, this name before. Uh, Joe Barry Carroll uh, and the Kevin McHale portion of it and how they missed out on him. But I didn't piece together that uh, exactly what this meant uh, for, 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 the, for the 80s and onward. So, yeah, maybe it's, you know, instead of the, the <clears throat> Celtics Lakers, maybe it's Pistons Lakers that becomes the, the dominant, you know, battle in the 80s. So uh, the NBA should should uh, write a big thank you note to the Warriors for <laughs> For saving it, like you said, from the tape delay, from the cocaine era, from you know all that mess. So, yeah, and I don't, I don't know what happened. I think that the Pistons is a great alternative superpower in the '80s because Jordan was still, you know, a poodle at the time, and he still needed Detroit to, you know, knock him around a little bit before he uh, built some muscle and, and and kicked their ass. Who else? What happens to Bird? I mean, Bird ends up. Uh, does Bird still figure it out? I, does he become Jordan and just sh- scoring 25, 30 points a game with little help? And th- maybe the Celtics figure it out in the second half of the decade versus kind of com- coming out of the gate hot like that? I mean, there, there was such a like a, uh, an imbalance of power in terms of like front office competence with the teams like the, the Lakers and the and the, the Celtics. They just they were. To, to borrow the Joe Lake phrase, light years ahead of everybody else. So they fleeced the Warriors to get Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish. They would have done it to somebody else. And if you have, 
you know, Larry Bird, who's a top 10 all-time player, they would have figured it out. Um, it's just a really interesting wrinkle that, you know, it's, it's not the same, you know, there's, there, that growth that they had through the eighties, you know, with Mikhail and Parrish and, and Bird and Dennis Johnson, all these guys, it just, it takes a different path. And maybe like we said, the, the, the Pistons become, you know, the dominant power instead of being the, you know, quote unquote, overlooked team and being all bitter about constantly being overlooked in those discussions. Maybe they are the dominant Eastern conference team. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. You know where I saw, I saw this, I was on a plane last week flying and I had downloaded the Lakers Celtics best of enemies 30 for 30. Yeah. It was like the, the four part series, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the few downloadable things on ESPN plus and Donnie Wahlberg was, you know, just so excited to talk about Red Arback and how he just used to fleece other teams. Now I remember this being a Warriors uh, uh, fleecing, how they got Mikhail via trade like that. Okay. Yeah, it was like a footnote in the history, but it, it's a pretty big deal. And, of course, you think about the Warriors missing out on a player like Mikhail, who is again, you know, and, and Paris, that combination that they have, they would have their own twin towers that, you know, uh, Ralph Sampson, Akeem Olajuwon type team, which in that time, you know, that era is, is what it took to be successful. And in case they, you know, and instead they roll the dice on another center in, in Barry Carroll, that was not very good. So. Ugh. Wow. That's disgusting. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't have anything else on this, dude. No, no. Back to you. So I have something that does relate to other bad decisions and, and what ifs. Um, I, I went through several bad contracts. I was just looking at some of these Warriors players from the early 2000s, kind of post Chris Webber through the we, we Believe years. And one player that seems to intertwine with a number of bad signings and salary cap restrictions was Gilbert Arenas. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know, Gilbert Arenas before Steph Curry was one of those NBA players taking shots a few feet behind the three-point line. He he had, was one of those early unconscious shooters um, in the league. So the Warriors drafted him in the second round in 2001. Uh, after his rookie deal expired, everyone wanted him, the Lakers, etc. So the Wizards get him on a six-year, $60 million contract. And the only reason why the Warriors couldn't match this offer was they were over the salary cap. And I'll get into some of those contracts uh, that hindered getting him then and getting him later. Uh, and they couldn't match the offer sheet because being over the salary cap, he was a second round pick. If he was a first round pick, there were exceptions in the cap that would have let them match the offer sheet. So that's where the Gilbert Arenas rule was created that allowed teams to re-sign restricted free agents regardless of what round they were selected in. Um, so that, that that was one I, I didn't know about. But one of the, I think the first bad salary that translates to this is after uh, Chris Mullen is traded to the Indiana Pacers, they picked up Eric Dampier, who's a second round pick, and re-signed him in 1999 for six years, $48 million. This was the bad salary that prevented them from re-signing Gilbert Arenas in 2003. So Gilbert Arenas is gone. They're over the salary cap because Eric frickin' Dampier got $8 million a year, which was enough to put them over the cap. For a few I mean, years. Bad, bad franchises do bad things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, 100%. So here's, here's a couple other ones. Adonald Foyle in 2004, unrestricted free agent, six years, $41 million at 29 years old. He played three seasons before 
Uh, they agreed to a buyout. He's the all-time leader in blocks. I loved him when he played. A lot of teams were looking to get him at the mid-level exception, which was about $3 million, $3 million or less, uh, give or take, per year. They overpaid him as well at 29 years old. Uh, Derek Fisher in 2004, he was 30 years old. He'd already been through several finals runs. He wasn't even, he ended up not even starting. Baron Davis and Speedy Claxton uh, immediately kind of uh, supplanted him. He was traded away after two years and had this funny story with the Utah Jazz where he said, you know, he was awful. Yeah, it's awful. He's like, I need to take care of my daughter. (laughs) So they let him go. And then he signed with the Lakers like two weeks later. So I remember that story. It was about his daughter with some, I think she needed eye surgery or something like that. And he opted out or he tried to get out of that contract. Yeah. Not a nice guy, this Derek Fisher fella. (laughs) Derek Fisher, secret NBA asshole. Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, Another kind of fan favorite, Corey Maggette in 2008. Five years, $50 million. Baron Davis leaves. They couldn't get Gilbert Arenas or Elton Brand, so they picked a different former Clipper (laughs) who only played for the team for two years. He was traded away in 2010. Uh, And then Steven Jackson. Three years, $27 million. This was a max extension. He still had two years left on his contract. The funny nugget about it is he negotiated this extension directly with the team president, who was Robert Orwell at the time. And then he pissed everybody off, and he was traded away a year later with AC Law for Rajah Bell and Vladimir Redmanovich. I don't know if you knew that. He'd renegotiated his contract himself. I did, yeah. I'm surprised he didn't do it in like a strip club or something. (laughs) So what I want to explore is Gilbert Arenas actually not having all of this incompetence and salary management around and actually playing as a warrior in 2003 or 2008. I I more so examined 2008 because they had actually made the playoffs, upsetting the Dallas Mavericks in the first round. Um, They had a a much better team at the time. Uh, what, what, What does that sound like to you? What do you think? I I think it, I don't think it changes the overall, you know, uh, impact of that team. I don't think they go much further. Maybe they beat Utah that year. Uh, but that was more about size and, you know, they had Utah was just a better team. They had Carlos Boozer who's elite Mehmet Okur. You know, it was, it was just the, that win against Dallas was the ceiling. I think anything more than that, you needed to have a more well-rounded team, you know, this, the, the pace and space and the, you know, uh, all these shooters kind of being all around the same size was ahead of its time, but it was not going to win you a championship in that, that era uh, of the NBA. So I think what's, what's more interesting is, you know, what is the impact on the franchise if, if arenas is able to stay. And it's, it's just ironic that, you know, a bad team finally kind of catches a break in finding a superstar in the second round and they gamble on this guy and they lose him basically on a technicality that gets reversed. Um, so and it's, and all these other bad contracts that you mentioned, it's, it's, it's not funny to think of the Warriors like this, but it's, it's just, they're operating in a different space then, right? At the, like now you think about, they're going after veterans, guys are taking discounts to come play for the Warriors. They're, they're ring chasing, you know, back then you're overpaying for bad talent. You're basically OKC. You're basically Minnesota. You're like it's, it's weird to think of a team in the San Francisco Bay area as a small market team, but that is essentially what they were because of their ownership, because of their, you know, lack of success. So 
yeah, it's it's really interesting to, th- to think about what the overall franchise impact would be if they did have that superstar that they were able to build around, you know, in that early 2000s. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that completely. I think that they they functioned like a small market team. And he, here's what could have happened if they made this work. I agree with you. I think that they probably wouldn't get over the hump after Utah. Um, but here's who was available in the offseason as an unrestricted free agent. There weren't any bigs available as unrestricted free agents. There were a lot of restricted free agents. But Robert Ory, Jose Calderon, Eddie House, uh, Matt Barnes, uh, Monte Ellis, Baron Davis, a lot of guys on the team, James Jones, uh, um, Andres Biedrins, and Michael Petras. So they could have traded a few guys to make space, maybe for Elton Brand too. But the problem was Chris Cohen, who was the owner at the time, was, I mean, he, he just loved Don Nelson from, from the beginning. He continued to stick with Don Nelson. And there's no way he was going to go over the tax because hilariously, he was in court for tax evasion after selling his company, Sonic Communications, for $200 million. Um, so I don't know. The, the incompetence has no limits, no boundaries. It, it even goes to criminal court. <laughs> poor, poor ownership trickles down, man. It's you, you can't you can overcome, you know, bad drafting, some bad signings here and there, but you cannot overcome poor ownership, you know, for to, for sustained success, at least you can have little blips here and there, but but you're not doing anything for long if your ownership is not just bad, but actively holding you back from competing by not going over tax, by consistently making bad decisions, um, and that's that's what the Warriors did for a long time. Yes, yes. A realistic version of the team could have been Baron Davis, Monte, Gilbert, Arenas, uh, Matt Barnes, Captain Jack on maybe a more team friendly deal. Uh, some of the other guys in the We Believe team. But the only potential caveat that they might have been able to do is Mike D'Antoni had just gotten fired um, from Phoenix, and he ended up going to the Knicks. They had a shot at him if in, in, in a, uh, an alternative universe. And Larry Brown, uh, who ended up going to, I think, Charlotte or something like that um, at the time. Uh, but that's all, all I got on that. Anything else? No, no. That's all I got as well. All, all right. right. So I, so next up for me is, uh, so the number five on my list, I don't think you had this one on yours, um, was an interesting draft decision, um, in 1999. Um, so this was the uh, draft where the Warriors chose to select, uh, well, they didn't select him, but they, um, ended up selecting Vince Carter and immediately traded him for, um, his North Carolina teammate, uh, Antoine Jameson, who was selected by the Toronto Raptors. Um, so this was an, an interesting turning point moment for me. I don't, I don't know how much of an impact it makes on the team on the court. Um, I mean, Antoine Jameson was, you know, a, a good enough player. Um, he ended up having a, a pretty long career in the NBA. He was around the league for I think 16 years. He's in the 20,000 point club. So he's he was a good player, um, but you could kind of say, but he wasn't necessarily a winning player. And you could say the same about Vince Carter, who um, went through kind of a, a interesting transition late in his career where he went from, I don't want to say a, a lovable loser, but that's kind of the, the tag that was attached to him. He was a, a, you know, a good player. He was a great showman, uh, but he didn't win anywhere. He went and he had 
some attitude concerns or some some motivation concerns, so to speak. Um, but he transformed his career at the end. He came became that lovable old guy that stuck around, and people kind of forgot the the weird moments of him, you know, being late or you know going to his graduation day of a playoff game and, and some weird things like that. But what's interesting is what I think this does is similar to the way Vince Carter put the Raptors on the map. I think he would have done the same for the Warriors because instead of, you know, him doing the famous, you know, it's over after the dunk contest in a Raptors Jersey, he's doing that in a Warriors Jersey. And what does that do for the, the cachet of the team, the profile, you know, he was a, a, a superstar for a period of time, so that's, you know, I, I wonder what, what does that do to the team and, and how does that impact, you know, the, their, uh, you know, ability to build a contender in that early 2000s. Yeah, there's a, there's a few what ifs that tie to this, right? Like Vince Carter was super popular um, and may have attracted maybe a little more talent. I think as a brand, obviously he was super popular, super exciting, a lot of, uh, key dunk moments, right? Um, especially for Team USA. But I think that uh, I think you'd have to pair this with a couple, maybe of our other what ifs in here to make this uh, even more spicy, right? Like if they still have Chris Weber, uh, maybe this is like really appealing. Uh, having Vince Carter on the team, uh, maybe not having some of those bad contracts uh, that made this. Uh, more difficult long-term to sustain. It's. I feel like this would have been mismanaged. That's kind of what might have been the most likely scenario. Like Antoine Jameson was traded away anyway to Washington, right? Yeah, so they, they probably, or he's traded to Dallas and then Dallas. he ended up, I mean, I think he's most known for being uh, a wizard. Coincidentally on uh, the Gilbert Arenas teams, you know, uh, that were, were spicy in the playoffs. They didn't really win anything, but they were competitive. Uh, so you wonder, you know, if they have Chris Weber, they're probably not picking third overall, uh, you know, in this draft. Uh, so, or fourth overall, I should say. Um, but they could still have gotten Gilbert Arenas, who was a second round pick. And Elvis, you know, you pair Vince Carter with Gilbert Arenas. Maybe you have a little Jason Kidd, Vince Carter, you Mark know, Jackson. New Jersey, yeah, New Jersey Nets type, uh, you know, really exciting team to watch versus you know, the kind of crap that we were, were spoon fed in the early 2000s. Uh, so I think that that's my, my thing is I don't, they're not winning a championship with those two guys, but I think it does make a, an on-court difference and an off-court difference in the stature of, of the franchise and like the cultural cachet, like, so to speak. I think if you base, if, if things fall the right way, even with a little bit of incompetence, that Sacramento LA finals shifts about, an hour and a half uh, the other way and it's in the Bay area and it's the warriors against the Lakers instead of the Kings against the Lakers. I think that's the best case scenario. If you're, if things fall into place, you get Mark Jackson in the second round, you get agent zero, you get Vince Carter. This is, this is exciting homerism right here. This is where you get <laughs> super beefed up and explore the best case scenarios. And then the Lakers and the Spurs break your heart anyway in the, in the two thousands, but this is it, baby. Yeah, nobody's winning a title, you know, with Vince Carter, Gilbert Arenas, but you have a good enough team where it's exciting, where, you know, someone like Jameson isn't asking out after five years because he hasn't had a winning season, you know, since he got drafted. So it's, 
yeah, that, that's the big thing for me is, is that that's the fun thing to think about and kind of the sad thing to think about of, you know, how cool, I mean, Vince Carter was just a very cool player. You know, he, like I said, he wasn't a, a winner, but he was a lot of fun to have on your team. And that, that would have been very cool to see. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I couldn't agree more. All right. Back over to you. Yeah. So I'm, I think uh, I'm out of uh, top scenarios, but I have a couple honorable mentions uh, that are worth exploring. So my first honorable mention is the actual sale of the team uh, from Chris Cohen to Joe Lakeup and Peter Gruber. So uh, it's well documented that they really wanted this team. Larry Ellison, who is uh, the owner of Oracle, uh, the company, had an endless cast stream. I mean, there was no way that uh, they, they, they were going to beat this guy in a straight-up bidding war. Um, so Joe Lakeup, a bit of a salesman, comes from venture capitalist uh, t- type of stuff, basically planted in Chris Cohen's mind that selling the team to anyone but him would be a huge mistake. And that's how they won the team. And, uh, and regardless of, uh, you know, how you may feel about Joe Lakeup and, and company, um, things did change when they bought the team. So I think that's just an on- honorable mention. Did you have anything to add to that? I mean, you, you listed it as an honorable mention. Shit, maybe that's number one. <laughs> I mean, we just got done talking about all these bad decisions they made and, you know, Chris Cohen, um, you know, picking Don Nelson over everybody else. And it's like, you know, maybe if they don't have the right ownership in place, none of this other stuff happens. You don't have someone that, I mean, we, we want to give obviously Lake Hub and, uh, you know, credit and group of credit for what they've done. They've kind of, you know, backed into some of these, the, these scenarios that we talked about with Steph and, and clay and things like that. Um, and, and Draymond getting, you know, being a starter after the injury. Uh, but they are the owners there. They, things did turn around, um, you know, when they bought the team. So correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, but in this case, maybe it does. I, I'm glad you said that. Here's why I listed it as an honorable mention. Uh, we talked about the Steph Monte Bogut carousel uh, of, of trades. Here's why I think they just got totally lucky that Steph stayed healthy and became the most amazing player uh, ever is they, this isn't from Ethan Strauss's book also, is they almost traded Steph Curry and Clay Thompson for Chris Paul in 2011. So all that light years stuff, all of that just comes from getting lucky because they were wanted to do it. They wanted to trade the, the, the best backcourt ever, the Splash Bros for Chris Paul. But Chris Paul d- did want out famously. Uh, his trade was vetoed to the Lakers by, by uh, d- the late David Stern, and he ended up going to the Clippers. He wanted out of New Orleans, but he told them that, look, you could do it, but my, when my contract is up, I'm not going to renew with you. That's the only reason why that trade didn't happen, is they had no guarantee from him that he was going to stay. So they, don't, they ended up keeping the Splash Bros. The Hornets <laughs> end up missing out basically on accident, the best backcourt ever. Um, they end up getting Eric Gordon, Chris Kamen, El Farouk Aminu, uh, and a draft pick that became Austin Rivers in the Chris Paul trade. Uh, and then as a consolation, they eventually get Anthony Davis in the lottery. Um, so that's why I put him as an honorable mention. What I want to explore is if Chris Paul did extend, obviously we've seen Chris Paul go from team to team, that they do become contenders. The question is, 
is does the team without Stephen Clay make it through the Western Conference and win a title? How does this look different with Mr. Light Years if Chris Paul's running the show? So as a proud Chris Paul hater, I say no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, there's a track record of, you know, him falling enough. I don't want to say falling apart, but falling short um, in the big moments and not being able to, to get his team over the hump. Maybe some of that is mentality. Maybe some of it is the fact that, um, you know, he is a, a smaller guard that that's easier to, to defend in, in, you know, these type, uh, you know, these playoff type scenarios. Uh, but he does have a noted history of failures um, in those big moments, losing game sevens, make, you know, blowing three, one leads, et cetera. Um, so I can say with a like 99% degree of confidence, no, <laughs> <laughs> the Warriors do not win the title uh, with Chris Paul as, as their number one player. Yeah, I, I agree as also a proud Chris Paul hater. I appreciate his game. I just think that his freaking shitheadery just makes him difficult to like. Exactly. The shenanigans, the, the, to use the soccer term, the shithousery is, is a little too much. Um, so I had, I had another, I had one honorable mention. Uh, we'll just cover this real quick is just, uh, you know, Baron Davis and, and uh, Steven Jackson sticking around um, after the, the, we believe era came to an end. Um, I think this was another one that does not have a huge on-court impact um, in terms of, you know, championship odds or, or success. Um, but it does, you know, the, 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 we believe era, which was at for a long time, you know, the peak of warrior fandom for the last, you know, 20, 30 years um, kind of ended like with, with a whimper with, with Steven Jackson getting traded away and, and Baron Davis going to the Clippers and not really being the same player after that. Um, so, yeah, they were two fan favorites, but I think it, it opened, obviously opened the door for, the Steph Curry era. Uh, so in hindsight, it was definitely the, the right move to send those guys back. In. Yeah. Even if they had stayed, it just, they, we knew what their ceiling was and the, the, the team needed to, to, to switch things up. So it is an honorable mention because of what they meant for a couple of years to us fans. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was inevitable. A what if scenario with them, like Chris Paul, it just kind of flames out quickly. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, I think culturally and, and, the, from a nostalgia perspective, you know, with Steph wearing their jerseys before they, they left Oracle for the last time. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, all warm and fuzzy, but it was not very warm and fuzzy at the time. You know, it was, it ended very acrimoniously the way they left. So, uh, yeah. All right. So that, that's it for our list. All right. So, so my top five were uh, in this order, the uh, Curry slash Monte trade for Andrew Bogut, uh, Kevin Durant, choosing uh, Boston over the Golden State Warriors. Uh, Kevin Love being a possible trade candidate for Klay Thompson prior to the 2014 season. Uh, the Warriors uh, selecting Joe Barry Carroll uh, and trading away Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale. Um, and number five was drafting Antoine Jameson or, or trading for Antoine Jameson um, in, over Vince Carter. Um, and your five. Yeah, so my five is also Steph. Uh, number one, Steph, Monte Ellis, Andrew Bogut, that kind of, uh, that, that whole trade uh, scenario. Uh, number two is signing Steve Kerr over Stan Van Gundy. What would have happened if they selected Stan Van Gundy instead? 
Uh, number three is Chris Weber and kind of the bad business that came from that. It, what could have been uh, number four is what could they have done instead of some of their bad signings and kind of the Gilbert Arenas uh, white Buffalo caveat that, that, ne- that what could have been number five is just Kevin Durant. Really? We covered a lot of Kevin Durant, the enigma that is KD. Yeah. I, I personally love him, but yeah. The Kevin- no, I, I do too. That's he, he's not as divisive as, as, people on social media at least among warriors fans with the one wake you believe um, yeah uh honorable mentions larry ellis buying the team uh instead of joe lakeup and peter gruber uh another one is trading steph curry and clay thompson for chris paul uh in 2011 and, and then not getting anywhere uh and then, <laughs> and then just clay thompson for kevin love all right that's it for our show thanks for tuning in stay stay tuned for uh, plenty more from the, the 4040 Vision podcast brought to you by Sideline Sports. Uh, check us out on all social outlets and anywhere you can uh, find a podcast. Thanks, everybody. See you soon. See ya. Thanks, everyone. Dream, dream. Dream. I fell asleep and made the flowers. For a couple of hours. On a beautiful day. On a beautiful day. Flowers. Flowers. Oh, it's a spy from behind my giant robot's eyes. I keep them happy because the mic falls out of